Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The battle lines are drawn once more this morning as we enter a new phase of the conflict. On the one side are the wreckers, the destroyers, the rebels, the side tied to the most hardline ideology and dogmatic political philosophy ever seen. Uh, But that's enough about the European Union. Prime Minister Boris Johnson awoke this morning to cries of foul after Downing Street effectively blew up relations with Angela Merkel yesterday in a series of leaked reports about a phone call between the two. It's now down to him and Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach to find some common ground before the end of the week. Or, I'm afraid, it is a no-deal deal. The Remainers are still jumping about trying to figure out how they managed to get hoodwinked by the evil genius Dominic Cummings. Their cause is looking more and more feeble, isn't it? Coming up, we'll talk to Ben Habib from the Brexit Party to find out what the temperature is like over in Brussels, of course. 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, we've got the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Met coming in as well to explain police policy on those climate... There, I can't even say it. Climate change planks from Extinction Rebellion. It looks like they're taking a harder line this time, but what if it doesn't work? Uh, the planks are saying they're going to go down to City Airport tomorrow, which seems to me to be an absolutely arrestable offence. I'm going to be asking the police commissioner, why on earth can we not put an exclusion zone around London and just ban these people from coming anywhere near it? Uh, also, we'll be seeing what we can learn from the Swedish royal family after King Carl XVI Gustav sacked five of his own grandchildren from the firm, saving the taxpayer a fortune and delighting Swedish Republicans. It's given me a few ideas, as you can imagine. So if you're Harry and Meghan, uh, don't forget to tune in from your little tiny ten-bedroom cottage, taxpayer-funded in Windsor. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So the papers this morning tell the tale. Johnson gets last chance to keep Brexit deal alive, says the Times. The Guardian, on the other hand, the day the deal was doomed. I mean, that pretty much sums up where we are in this country, right? The Guardian want the deal to be doomed. The Guardian want the problem of uh, Brexit to go away. The Guardian would rather like it if we never left the European Union. But bad news for you guys uh, at the Guardian is that people actually did vote to leave. Boris Johnson is taking a tougher line with Europe and they're not liking it. And I say that that's got to be a good thing. We're going to move on for the moment and we'll take your calls on this later as well because I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Deputy Assistant Commissioner Lawrence Taylor from the Metropolitan Police. Lawrence, welcome uh, to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Appreciate you're having a pretty busy time at the moment with the Extinction Rebellion maniacs, as I call them. Um, these people think they've got a right to protest. Of course they do. Um, but they are causing a lot of problems, not only for the people who are trying to get around London, but for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you are right. Everybody does have a right to protest. But, but that right does not extend to disrupting people's lives, disrupting their livelihoods. Uh, and, and particularly from a policing perspective, drawing in officers from communities in London where they should and could be working yeah. on a daily basis. No, indeed. I got a lot of questions yesterday from people on Twitter and also from people ringing into the show saying, at what point does the kind of obstruction that they're, that they're taking part in 
become an offence? And when can you arrest them for that? Oh, we, we've been really clear that, that the activity of the protesters this time is unlawful. Yeah. So obstruction of the highway is an offence. There is a stated case that actually permits protest uh, to obstruct the highway. But because of the level of, of disruption, the significance and the serious nature of that disruption, uh, we put conditions on the protest yesterday under the Public Order Act, which means anybody protesting outside of Trafalgar Square is committing a criminal offence yeah. and they're liable to arrest. And the problem for you, I presume, is the sheer numbers. I was reading some stories in the Times today about some of the things that happened yesterday. You know, for example, the, some of the equipment that's been smuggled into Trafalgar Square. There was a car that was being guarded by two police officers, but they got distracted by somebody asking for directions. You know, there's so much going on. And I'm not blaming the police for any of this because it's a very difficult job that you guys are doing. But it's almost as though we need to come up with a different form of, of attack, if you like. Well, it's a really complex operation yeah. for us. So, so we, are, we are using every piece of legislation currently available to us to deal with the unlawful activity that we're encountering. But it takes time. Mm. When people go limp on arrest, it takes at least four officers yeah. to, to take them away. Um, they have to be processed through custody. That takes additional time. But also where, where we've seen tents, you know, we are, we are clearing a lot of tents. We've cleared 80 tonnes worth of equipment wow. to date. And where has that um, gone? So that's all storage because it's all evidence of offences. So okay. that's all being stored uh, at our property stores. Um, but people are locked on. They're glued together. Yeah. They've got big, thick D-locks around their necks. Mm. Um, it's not a quick process. No. Uh, and I've seen once we've then taken the road, we have to maintain a presence so that we can sustain our presence there. And once you do arrest them, you probably haven't got that much room. I know that you've opened up a few old uh, sort of um, mothballed custody suites in order to put them in somewhere, but you don't, you can't hold them for long, presumably. Well, we, we, we will. We, we are absolutely determined that people who commit offences go through the criminal justice system. Uh, you'll know from, from April, where we arrested over 1,100 people, um, nearly 900 people were charged, uh, and 250 have now got criminal convictions as mm. they're going through court. Mm. Um, but, of course, it does put further demand on our custody suite, but uh, we're a big organisation. We will cope. We have got ways of escalating and managing that, that throughput through our custody suites. And how did it go last night? Because you have arrested, I think, a few hundred, maybe 600 people so mm. far. Um, in, in terms of, of clearing areas, I'm told that you have cleared a lot of Westminster. Uh, are you confident that that is going to stay, that you can hold the line on that? Yeah, so we, we've asked for uh, officers from around the country to come and help us. We've brought additional resource in, which is part of that. Uh, we obviously have to prioritise where our activity mm. takes place. Uh, the original intention of Extinction Rebellion was 12 sites around Westminster. Um, by last night, they only had six remaining. Uh, we've got Lambeth Bridge and Westminster Bridge open, so we've conducted an awful lot of activity, because uh, there are other priorities for us as well. We mm. still have to police the rest of London, but we've got other big events with the half park mar uh, the um, half marathon yeah. uh, and the state opening of parliament that yeah. we've also got to contend with. Well, that's with. the big worry, isn't it? The state opening of parliament, state opening of parliament on Monday, uh, they're vowing to sort of, you know, disrupt that in some way, shape or form. Clearly, uh, the Queen needs to get to parliament. I mean, how confident are you that that's going to go smoothly? Very. Are you? It's a big security operation I should for say us. you're smiling quite confidently as you say I, that. I, I'm, I'm happy that right. the state opening of parliament will take place. There were some people yesterday hoping that the Queen's guard could somehow uh, move them slightly more robustly than you're allowed to, but I, I suppose you couldn't comment on that. 
Uh, no, and, and obviously we, we have a, a thorough plan in place for Monday. Uh, good. And what about City Airport? Because that's where they're planning to attack tomorrow. They say if they can't get inside the airport... I mean, I wonder whether these people have got some kind of delusions of grandeur and they think that they're actually in Hong Kong. Because somebody said to me today, you know, in Hong Kong they're demonstrating against communism. Here they're demonstrating to get it, which is rather ironic, I think. But can you stop them getting to City Airport? Well, as with any protest, we will be doing everything we can to minimise that disruption. Uh, there is no question. That, that they will look to try and, and disrupt the city airport as far as they can. Again, we have a very robust plan in place. Uh, we're engaged with them. We're explaining the disruption. Mm. Uh, they're not listening to right. us uh, at the moment, uh, but, but we are determined that our policing response uh, will be much like you've seen to date, which is robust, arresting people and clearing disruption away. One of the questions I've had for, uh, for, for officers like yourself in the past is, can you not issue them with some kind of... I know this is more of a judicial punishment, but can you not issue them with a sort of almost like a football banning order from coming into the centre of London uh, and disrupting it in the same way that they have been arrested for and charged? And the simple answer to that is no. We mm. don't have that legislation. Mm. Um, the, well, would that we, be useful? Well, certainly we, we've been in consultation with the Home Office following April about uh, legislation that, that would assist us in managing large-scale process. Uh, sorry, protest. A lot of the legislation was written back in the 80s mm. uh, and, and protest has moved on. The tactics are different now. Uh, and I These think tactics fair. have certainly changed because in the 80s there was... A a bit of head cracking going on. Yeah, well, you know, it's absolutely right. The, the, the way we police in this country is by consent. We've got a really effective police service. Uh, we do need to be robust, but we have to work within the law. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would be wholly inappropriate for us to conduct activity that's unlawful, uh, and we have to use force commensurate with what we're dealing with. Yeah, right. I mean, I remember, for example, the day that Boris Johnson was driving to Buckingham Palace and there was a, um, a police motorcycle officer who was a lot more robust than anybody had ever seen when those Greenpeace people stood in front of the Prime Ministerial mm. car. And people were... Th most people that I know were going, good on you, you know, give them a good shove. And I know that, you know, you, you, you can't sit there and say that's what we'd like to do more of, but, but sometimes I wonder if these protesters thought that their, their punishment was going to be worse, that their treatment was going to be not quite so nice that they might think twice about coming in from Berkshire to demonstrate on Mummy's uh, day off. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think that I would describe our, our approach as soft or, or nice, right. um, but we should be engaging people and, and treating them with respect. It, you know, that's how we police in this country. That doesn't stop us being robust. You, you mentioned Boris Johnson there. Mm. I mean, obviously, depending on the situation that we're encountered with, we will use different levels of force and different levels of tactics. Sure. And as far as sort of what you've learned, you've clearly changed your tactics from, from April. Mm. Um, you've made them more robust, as you said. Um, what, have you, what are you learning from, from this particular moment? Because I'm one that, slightly worried, as many people are, that this will go on for a while. Because their message is that we're not paying attention, which is wrong. Their message is that the, the world is going to die, which is wrong. Their message is kind of deluded, but I don't see that changing. So I see more of these protests rather than fewer. Well, I'm, I'm not here to comment on the rights or wrong of protest. Obviously, the police have to maintain that, that, that neutral line down the middle. There's no question that, that dealing with this type of protest is a challenge for the police service. Uh, as I say, we've, we've had those conversations about legislation. Um, but I think we have taken a different response. Uh, what we've done differently is we've been on the front foot. Uh, we've been very clear that, that the protest is unlawful and we are arresting really significant numbers. Mm. Over half in two days than we arrested over the whole two-week yeah. period last time round. Um, but it isn't a quick process uh, and it won't be a quick process uh, because of the things that we're facing and the level of resource that it sucks in. Sure. And what about the two weeks that they say they want to demonstrate for? Um, are you able to tell us whether that's going to be 
cut short, uh, whether it's going to end before this week or what? I'm not going to promise that we will eliminate all disruption. Yeah. Uh, there are a significant number of protesters around. Uh, our aim is to minimise that disruption, and the earlier we can stop that disruption, the better. Because I live in East London, right? I've got to go out for dinner in South West London on Thursday night. Any chance of a police escort so I can get through uh, the no, crusty no brigade? No, Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Uh, that is Deputy Assistant Commissioner Lawrence Taylor uh, from the Metropolitan Police. Keep up the great work because, you know, the people, the people who vote in this country, the people who pay you uh, the taxes in this country are absolutely behind you. Thanks very much for coming in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We've just been speaking to uh, Metropolitan Police Deputy Assistant Commissioner Lawrence Taylor, who assures us uh, that the police are not being soft on these protesters, who assures us that they are punishing them and that they are arresting them uh, at quite a rate. 600 so far, a confiscation uh, of what I think he said was 80 tonnes of tents. Let's talk to Paul, who's in Staffordshire. Hi, Paul. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Um, yeah, but I agree with you about uh, the Extinction Rebellion, the yeah. Smellies. Um, basically, it's going to get worse yeah. because um, you remember in the past when we had the Doomsday Preachers, mm. when they said the world's going to end? Oh, the end is Nye Brigade, went, yeah. yeah. And went up to the top of the hill and then it didn't happen. Oh, those guys, yeah, and the ones all, there, that was in California, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they all looked around at each other and thought, Oh, it ain't happened. I mean, it's like a Monty well, they... Python film, isn't it, in a way? In a way. Have you seen some of the footage of these maniacs, right, dressed up yeah. like something from The Handmaid's Tale with their faces yeah. painted, walking about? I mean, it really, I find it quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's a cult thing. And, yeah. uh, and they've got to push it and push it because in 12 years' time, we're all going to look around and go, what was that here? Yeah. Well, I mean, time anyone asks, every time anyone asks one of them, well, what's going to happen, you know, when we're still here in 10 years and actually everything's fine? Oh well, but, well, we won't be, uh, and if we're not, I'll, I'll be, I'll be happy. You know, well, you don't have any proof of anything. I know we'll be, we'll be stopping them in their cars, won't we, to chat to them. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, the world's still here, what, and you're still driving your car. Yeah. And, oh, you're still watching the news, are you? What are you watching the news mm. on? And, I know. You know, there's, there's such hypocrites. 
They really are. I mean, do you see that, that also they're getting paid for this? I mean, which puts a completely different um, sort of uh, wrinkle on it. Apparently, you can get up to 400 quid a week if you apply for funding from Extinction Rebellion because you can't basically cover your costs. They say up to a maximum of 400 pounds a week. I mean, that's a lot of money. Oh, bloody hell, I'm going to become one, Mike. I think it is going to happen in 12 years. <laughs> well, make sure, make sure you buy yourself some kind of red nun's outfit or something to stagger about. <laughs> and we'll see, you, we'll see you down by Westminster Bridge on Monday. Thanks very much indeed. The Queen's speech, of course, on Monday, uh, the opening, uh, state opening of Parliament on Monday, uh, the police gave me what can only be described as very much of a firm handshake on the fact that they will not be disrupting that and that they will not be disrupting uh, City Airport either and that they've certainly learned lessons from what happened earlier in the year. Coming up in this hour, we're going to be speaking to a royal historian about what I think is one of the greatest ideas I've ever seen, the Swedish king removing five people from the royal family amid concerns over the cost to taxpayers. Five of his own grandchildren have been fired from the firm. Now, I've got a lot of thoughts about this, and I've been giving it some thought, and I think uh, we could probably nominate five members of our own royal family uh, who could be kicked into touch, uh, taken off the royal payroll, and basically uh, made into ordinary private citizens. Harry and Meghan have got to be the first two, haven't they? 0344 499 1000. Also, uh, we'll be talking about how fast food in this country is apparently linked to Brazilian forest fires. Uh, if you can't follow that one, just listen up uh, and keep taking uh, your phone and getting, getting ready to call us as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, the King of Sweden uh, is not somebody that's probably familiar to many of you out there. His name is King Carl XVI Gustav, I believe is the right way to say it. Uh, he sacked five of his own grandchildren from the royal family in Sweden. Uh, they are Princess Leonora, Prince Nicholas, Prince Alexander, Princess Adrienne and Prince Gabriel. Now, many of them are a little bit on the young side, to be honest, and so uh, they might not know what's being taken away from them. Harry and Meghan, of course, here, uh, have been moaning and groaning on about how they don't like the fact that Meghan is being picked on by the papers. They're suing various newspaper groups because they believe that their privacy has been invaded. They don't like the fact that uh, they're currently being const constantly being held up uh, as people who are, you know, hypocrites doing as they want and then telling everybody else to do something completely different, flying around the world on private jets, going to visit Elton John, you know, going to parties in Rome, going to uh, barefoot... Contessa-style uh, conferences in Sicily, uh, where you talk about climate change and how important it would be to stop it all. Let's talk to Dr Anna Whitelock, who is a royal historian about all of this, and see whether I've gone completely bonkers mad or whether she agrees. Dr Anna, very good morning. Good morning, how Thank are you? Thank you. I'm very well indeed, very well. Now, we've been looking for a while for a way out of the Harry and Meghan sort of crisis, right? And I've been saying for a while, maybe they ought to be uh, private individuals because the scrutiny then would be less. They could be as philanthropic as they wanted. They could live a very nice life, have their foundations, do all the good that they want, and they wouldn't have to be asked those terribly awkward questions that they don't like being asked without permission. Well, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that view. I mean, of course... You know, the what used to be the civil list yeah. uh, became the sovereign grant in 2012. And this was really a response to the controversy that, you know, uh, who who funds the royals? You know, how much do we pay and why? Mm. And this was intended to kind of try and bring clarity by one payment to the Queen um, every year. And, of course, the accounts are published and so on. And, and last year or the year before, there was a bit of a hoo-ha about how much Buckingham Palace was going to cost to repair and yes. so on. Now, in terms of payments to the royals, I mean, it has been reduced over the, the years. 
Um, the Duke of Edinburgh receives a lump sum payment. The Queen does through the sovereign grant. And then after that, it becomes a little bit murky because mm. royals who are on sort of official royal duty do get expenses and so on paid for by the sovereign grant. But then the running costs, if you like, of Harry and Meghan and a large part of Charles and Camilla, um, that is paid for by the du- the income from the Duchy of Cornwall, which is basically um, crown estates that as heir to the throne Prince Charles had. So it's sort of self-financing, mm. but of course, you know, it's still it's still landed wealth. Well, I would be self-financing I mean, if somebody gave me a huge chunk of well, Britain quite. and said, why don't you farm that and see if you can sell some of the process, proceeds? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, there is, there is certain moves afoot to do this along, I mean, along the lines of the Swedish monarchy. I mean, first of all, you know, Harry and Meghan haven't taken a royal title for their son, Archie, mm. and have suggested that, you know, the expectation that he would have a kind of royal future rather than that of an independent individual, um, you know, shouldn't be assumed. So I actually think there is moves in that direction. And Charles himself um, has sort of expressed sympathy for the idea of uh, cutting down the number of minor royals um, who were sort of funded to carry out um, official duties. Yes. And I think that, you know, when he, I mean, certainly already Beatrice and Eugenie are, you know, forging their own career. And I think that he will be more explicit, um, Charles, in, in, in very much sort of making public who is allocated what and for what. And I do think it will be a, a very small nucleus of the royal family. And I think from the PR perspective, for their own survival and their own survivability, it would probably be quite a good idea, wouldn't it? Because it would certainly make the public more sympathetic. Because the public, I think, overall quite likes the royal family. They just don't like some of the bits about it that they'd rather not see happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, certainly the royal family have, you know, moved in the direction by, you know, the publication of their, you know, finances and the move of the sovereign grant. But of course... For some people, and not least, you know, those in the sort of republic movement, you know, this is not far enough. I mean, obviously, the extreme version uh, of opinion is, you know, they're never going to be justified in terms of the cost, and therefore they should be outright abolished. I think the more middle position is, you know, yes, people perhaps like the monarchy as a kind of backstop to the, you know, political system, or at least even just the kind of you know, the ceremony, the pomp, the pageantry, the brand of Britain that they kind of are so core to. However, you know, the running costs do need to be kept in check. And I think that that is something that Charles will be very receptive to that view. And as you say, I mean, it's playing, you know, playing the PR game is absolutely essential for their survival. Absolutely right, because Diana did a great deal of damage to the to the sort of institution of the royal family. I mean, I remember working back in Fleet Street uh, when Diana died, um, and that whole week of, of problems for the Queen when they wouldn't come out and talk about it, where there oh, wasn't yeah. the, the flag was not flying at half staff, and you know Tony Blair was getting up on his hind legs and thinking, "Hey, this is my chance to become president of Britain," and it really came quite close to a Republican movement moving the the whole uh, House of Windsor out of Buckingham Palace. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with you. I think that 1997 was the sort of absolutely key year. And it could, I mean, in a way, it could have completely uh, brought down the monarchy. Yeah. But actually, I think it, it was the making of it in a sort of modernised fashion, you know, relatively speaking. Because from that point, having been so out of step with public opinion, and as you say, I mean, anyone who's 
watched the Queen film or indeed just remembered those scenes and, and the newspaper headlines of the time, you know, where are you, ma'am? Mm. Um, being, and even though she was kind of doing what was expected, which was kind of royal seclusion at a time of mourning at Balmoral, looking after her grandsons, it was just seen in a kind of modern media age to be completely out of step. And she, in the end, was, you know, forced by Tony Blair and sort of the weight of public opinion to make that broadcast mm. where she talked about her, you know, role as a grandmother and so on. But, I mean, that then became this sort of turning point and the way a head committee was formed within the palace to try and get their house in order and make sure that they weren't so wrong-footed in terms of public opinion and the media in future. And then a lot of these reforms, including the changes around the sovereign grant and so on, moved uh, as a response to that. So in a sense, it was, you know, Diana both sort of damaged, but in a sense also reformed yes. uh, the monarchy. Oh, yeah, I think they did. And I think they realised how important that was. I can actually reveal to you that the, the headline, Show Us You Care, which was the one they highlighted oh, yeah, in the movie right, The yeah. Queen, that was my headline. I wrote that. Oh, was it? Yeah. So that's my claim yeah. to fame. But anyway, let's move on to the Swedish royal family. Um, what do you know about them? Do they run and, uh, like, we hear always about sort of the Dutch royal family, maybe the Swedish as well, that's very much more relaxed than ours. Yeah, is, is exactly. It? I mean, it's like the Danish royal family too. I mean, they're much more, I mean, the Danish ones were referred to as a sort of cycling monarchy because you kind of see them out, you know, being, you know, being sort of on their bikes. And a lot of these, you know, European monarchies, they're not, you know, they don't have a patch on our pomp and pageantry. And generally speaking, I mean, the Swedish royal family are pretty popular. Um, but I think they have realised that, you know, you need to move with the times. They need to streamline. They can't be seen to have these kind of hangers on. And, to be, you know, I think that, you know, the Queen, although she actually has been a kind of reformist in a very gradual way, um, there's no doubt that there will be uh, a moment um, after, you know, her passing where the royal family realise that they're going to have to kind of reboot in quite uh, a more dramatic way, uh, you know, and certainly not along the lines of, you know, the Danish and Swedish royal family being, you know, without all the carriages and all of that. But I do think there is going to have to be seen to be more of uh, an accountability and and less the kind of lavish lifestyle. I mean, the problem, of course, also is just the cost of security. I mean, you know, when the announcement was made that, you know, Harry and Meghan would be sort of paying for their own wedding, as it were, and mm. not the taxpayer, well, that was all very well. But, of course, there was absolutely millions of pounds that were involved with security. Yeah. And, of course, that is a cost. So that in itself becomes a problem but um well I mean, also I we've spent two and a half million quid revamping the, the small as they as, as megan refers to it the small cottage which happens to have 10 bedrooms and a, a solid copper bath in it and about 30 grand's worth of shrubbery now they might think that's not much money to them but we're paying it and it's quite a lot of money to us well exactly i mean and this is where although they can say that you know the money doesn't come from the taxpayer it comes from uh, the Duchy of Cornwall for a lot of the uh, sort of running costs of Harry and Meghan. The problem is when you're working on and renovating royal residences, that does come out of, you know, taxpayers' money. So, you know, that's where these things become a little bit murky. And, it, you know, in fact, there are, you know, you can't escape the fact that, you know, ultimately the royal family do cost uh, the, the UK taxpayer you know, a good, a pretty penny. Of course, the, you know, in in response to that argument, there always is the claim made, and indeed, it's you know a valid one 
that they bring in huge amounts in tourism and also the kind of soft diplomatic power around the world um, that brands Britain commands. And certainly, I think, you know, given the sort of state of uh, the British political system and our, our image to the world at the moment, you know, arguably the royal family is, is, a, is a positive and perhaps never more so. Well, quite. I mean, a lot of people have said, can you imagine what would happen if the Queen, although she hasn't actually actively intervened in all of the prorogation of Parliament and the new Queen's speech that's coming up, we don't expect her to do anything different. But the fact if she was not there, what would happen? Well, exactly. I mean, I do think for some people there is just a sense of a kind of, you know, a kind of tradition, the safety net, the sort of continuity that comes with the Queen. But partly, I think, and this is where the, the argument about how popular the monarchy is and what might happen in the future, you know, is hard to uh, is hard to draw out because, given that the Queen has been around for so long, there is a kind of enduring, I think, pop, uh, popularity that she commands and also respect purely or, or not, you know, not least because of her longevity and she's been there and people just think, you know, she's been there, she's seen it, she's done it, and she's a good thing. Whether that view actually survives. Uh, her and actually it sort of can be attached to the monarchy as an institution itself or it's more that she's just been an amazing long reigning dutiful queen remains to be seen yeah absolutely right so what is the future for harry and Meghan? because you can't really believe that they'll carry on like this i thought it's incredibly uh, ill-advised of them to sue newspaper groups in the way that they've done clearly outside of the advice of the royal family using shillings which is a very sort of you know rapacious celebrity. if you like yeah, yeah celebrity yeah. defending kind of legal firm and you know it's not a very good look really no i mean i totally agree with you i mean i suppose i would only just sort of take issue with the ill-advised because i suspect they were pretty well advised but they just didn't they didn't choose to take the mm. advice mm. um and i mean you know they've been trying to walk this very fine line between royalty and celebrity and it's it's it seems to be one which they're falling sort of foul of and they are you know on the celebrity uh, side which is sort of running up against royal expectations for them and protocol and precedent and you know even things like they're, you know, launching their Instagram account and sort of doing their own media, as it were, and being less reliant on the traditional media. You know, that's all very well and all very, you know, moving with the times. But, you know, the monarchy and the media have a very natural relationship and a sort of dependent one. Mm. And they are essential for one for the other. And, you know, by moving against the, the media in this way, and I mean, just the timing, I was really surprised yeah. by being on a, the end of a, you know, successful royal tour. It did seem to be very, very odd, uh, the moment that was chosen. And in a sense, ended up sort of shooting themselves in the foot yeah. because actually it took the, you know, positive press away from them. Um, so, I but mean, you see, I think, it. I've always thought deep down, and I've been in and out of royal stories, you know, for decades, longer than I care to remember, um, but the thing is that they are actually quite removed from normal society, the royals, you know, even Harry, sure. who's thought to be this kind of, you know, action man type guy, likes a party, you know, has finally settled down with a woman that he loves. I mean, these guys have had such huge privilege in their lives that they don't really understand what ordinary life is like. No, I mean, I think that's right. Although I think, we, you know, there is, Harry and um, William, to some extent, are an exception and have the additional, I mean, it's an awful expression, sort of hard to play, and I don't mean it in that cynical way. No, but I know what you mean. For, by virtue of, you know, the circumstances of their mother's death. Mm. And the fact is, you know, they can speak, you know, authentically about grief, 
and about, you know, mental uh, struggles, which, you know, emotional struggles, which yes. they have done. And listen, and, so I, I, and I totally understand his hatred of the press. And if I was yeah, him, I'd probably hate the press as well. But he's also got to have a responsibility towards the job that he's got, um, which is not to antagonise them. Well, I think that's right. And it seems, you know, and Harry, of course, you know, had, as he was going through his late teenage years, you know, and he had those press uh, pictures of him, you know, ill-advised, dressing up in a Nazi mm. uniform and all the cavorting around. And I think, you know, he did have a difficult relationship with the press. And then he talked about, you know, quite candidly about, you know, he'd rather not be in this position. But now that he is, he realises that it does give him a public platform and he can use it for good. And actually in the in the sort of immediate years before his marriage to Meghan, he seemed to sort of come to a, a bit of a peace with the press and, you know, was sort of more relaxed in the role that he was in and the platform that he had. And it seems that he's now perhaps genuinely because of just this sort of, you know, that Meghan has had some bad press. And obviously that just resonates with the memories of what happened to his mother. Um, you know, that's made him kick out. Yeah. And also perhaps Meghan herself is, you know, is driving him to, you know, act in a way that perhaps, I mean, it's hard to see, is this Harry the real Harry or is, you know, is that Harry actually being quite influenced by his by his wife? It's hard to say. Interesting, yeah. Well, I'm not going to ask you to join me in my enterprise of sacking five members of the royal family, but if you accepted that Harry and Meghan left and Andrew was my next nomination, who would you suggest as the next two to have their royal highness title removed? Well, I mean, I suppose... Maybe, you know, you could say, well, beyond Andrew and Edward and beyond... I mean, literally, you you know, arguably the Queen, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh uh, and then Charles and William as, you know, yeah. and as direct... I mean, in a sense, as direct descendants and, and heirs to the throne. Uh, beyond having... I mean, at the moment, you've got a sort of fortunate position, as it were, for the Queen of having, you know, her the line of succession very clearly established. I mean, she's got that sort of... She's got a backlog of heirs. So arguably, anyone beyond Prince George, who's not uh, a direct descendant uh, of the crown, you know, doesn't need to be doesn't need to be paid for. Oh, no, I think that's fairly straightforward stuff. Dr. Anna Whitelock, thank you very much indeed. Royal historian, fascinating story. There's the Swedish royal family deciding to pare itself down by five uh, individuals, people who would have been known as your royal highness, four uh, princesses and princes, basically removed from the Swedish royal family. Let's do the same thing here. I think it makes perfect sense. 0344 499 1000. I've just been handed a breaking news story. Judges at Scotland's highest civil court will not rule on a legal bid aimed at forcing the Prime Minister to send a letter requesting a Brexit extension if no withdrawal deal is reached by October the 19th until after that date. So, I mean, that would be Dale Vince's case from yesterday. Basically, they're saying, look, you can't force something to happen that hasn't happened yet, that might happen, until it happens. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Got a tweet party. here from somebody too called Frankly Man. He says, does Mike Graham ever get any callers that disagree with him? I've been dipping in and out over the past couple of days, listening to three or four calls at a time, uh, which is all I can bear. And all I hear is people agreeing. It was 52-48. So why no dissenting voices? 
Well, uh, frankly, uh, you've got the number, 0344 499 1000, if you want to call me and disagree with me, uh, you may well please do so. However, I would issue you with a caution. It's very unusual for people to disagree with me because I basically talk so much common sense and the reason that people don't want to disagree with me is because quite often if they do, uh, it makes them look a bit daft. Do you know what I'm saying? But feel free to call me, uh, and if you listen for long enough, you will find somebody will disagree with something, unbelievably, that I have said. But let's talk to Alex uh, in Glasgow. Are you going to disagree with me, Alex? Uh, no, not this time, Mike. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to clear something out right about Northern Ireland politics. Yeah. And this goes to the heart of the Brexit sticking point, uh, and that this is ultimately a land grab by the Republic of Ireland and the EU working in cahoots. Yes. So, first of all... Northern Ireland politics, everyone knows, is centred on the voting lines unionists and nationalists. Mm. And it's those nationalist parties, and even those that claim to occupy the neutral centre ground, like the Alliance Party, and for those who don't know who they are, it's like a watered-down, reheated version of the Liberal Democrats, okay, right. um, are deliberately misrepresenting a national referendum as a devolved one. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll squeeze more of your calls in before Matthew Wright gets here at one o'clock. But this music can only mean one thing. It's the return of the Donna Harvey from KOGO in San Diego, uh, where apparently in America they're trying to impeach the president. LaDonna, a very good morning to you. Well, and a good morning to you. It's just chaos on, on both sides of the pond. Isn't it, it fabulous? It really is. I mean, and why do they want to impeach him this time? And when was the last time somebody tried to impeach Donald Trump? So they've, they've been trying to impeach him, I think, since before he was actually elected. <laughs> and they just, you know, sort of, it's just a rolling sort of impeachment. Yes. We're just going to keep going until we actually catch him doing something. And considering that uh, it sounds quite serious, he doesn't seem to be taking it terribly seriously. He's saying he's not going to cooperate with their procedure of impeachment. Um, well, uh, he, he is and he isn't. Uh, he's going to dig his heels in for as long as he can, and he's going to make them jump through every legal hoop, which, frankly, if I was being prosecuted on any, on any level for anything, that's exactly what I would do, too. Yeah, well, you'd hire, <laughs> you'd hire a team of lawyers and go, yeah, well, come at me if you want. Go and talk to them. Don't talk to me. I'm not talking to you. But that's the funny thing about this whole process, because I was watching a show the other night in which a commentator was saying, well, it's all very well if the House of Representatives does it, uh, but the Senate probably wouldn't uphold it anyway. So I was saying to someone uh, the other day, the whole impeachment process has been kind of devalued, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I would think that, that you would hold that for something that was incredibly egregious. Um, but, you know, we're, we're playing politics now and, and we're, we're doing it on Twitter and Facebook um, and Instagram. Right. So it's just, you know, who can get the prettiest little soundbite on on social media to go viral? And it's, it's, it's a war on your phone. Yeah, because Trump is now calling for the impeachment of other people. I've seen that he's now calling, I think he's calling for the impeachment of Adam Schiff. Um, he's not very keen on uh, Doug Collins, the uh, representative of uh, one of the part, one of the states of the U.S. He's not keen on the whistleblowers on the Ukraine story. I mean, he's not very keen on anyone, really. No, he's really not. Um, he's not keen on anybody who doesn't like Donald Trump. No, that's a <laughs> so, lot of people. It's a lot of people, and uh, and you know, I guess you're I guess your mark the mark that you make is is really 
according to your enemies. Yes. I particularly liked his tweet that he sent out uh, around about 3am our time, I think, this morning, which would be, I guess, about 10pm his time. So well into the cheeseburgers, I presume. This is the greatest witch hunt in the history of the USA. Um, I was going to suggest maybe the Salem witch trials were probably the greatest witch hunt in the history of the USA. Yeah, when actual people were burned at the stake and hung. Yeah. Uh, and they were real witches <laughs> as well. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, yeah, <laughs> when, when people were actually murdered, that yeah. was probably the, the greatest witch hunt. Yes, I would have thought so. Now, meanwhile, there are other people who are saying that the evidence is clear now that Donald Trump is kind of losing the plot because his statement about Turkey and um, Syria and the fact that America is going to pull all of its troops out of that part of the world is clearly the work of somebody who hasn't thought it through. Um, I don't think he has thought it through, I'll, I'll be honest. And, and I'm not a Trump hater. I, I'm, I'm really not. I'm not a Trump lover either. I'm pretty neutral on yeah. the guy. It's hard to believe that you are like that, actually, because I'm going to come up to something on that as, as well in a moment, because we have got this ridiculous scenario, both here and in the US, where you can't any longer be neutral. You have to either hate all the people on the other side or be on the other side. Yeah, no, I'm going to be in the in the middle of the road with the dead armadillos, as they say, uh, you know, just standing here minding my own damn business. <laughs> Absolutely, as the trucks roll through. Well, I was going to yeah. because I was going to bring up Ellen DeGeneres, and she got into trouble over the uh, the, the, the week uh, the weekend earlier because she was spotted at the Dallas Cowboys game in a very exclusive kind of um, private suite owned by the owners of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, talking to George W. Bush. And people went nuts. And she's put out what I think is a fantastic uh, a video from her show, just saying, do you know what? I'm friends with people who, do, who I don't agree with. How about that? Uh, imagine. Yeah. Imagine that. Um, I, am, I am friends with a lot of people that I disagree with politically. And strangely, um, they're friends with me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it comes as no surprise to you, LaDonna, that most people disagree with me about almost everything. Um, but I do never, nonetheless actually not only have friends, but members of my family that still speak to me. Hey, strangely, I am in the same position. <laughs> um, you know, when we're eating over our Thanksgiving turkey, nobody's beamed me with a drumstick yet. So well, well, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. It could still happen. I mean, it depends on your view of the, uh, of the impeachment <laughs> proceedings, presumably, right? Apparently so. I know. It, it depends on how I voted in the last 15 elections. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether you've got any traction on a big story here about an American um, woman who's married to a guy who has diplomatic immunity. It's been a big story here. Boris Johnson supposedly is getting involved with the White House about it. But the, it's basically a, a car crash that happens. The woman is living, is married to a guy working in an RAF base who, who's believed to be a sort of quite high-level diplomat stroke spy. She runs into a, a young man, a 19-year-old on a, a motorbike, um, talks to the police, says she's going to cooperate, then flees the country, claiming diplomatic immunity. And the family, of course, are distraught, trying to bring her back, saying, you know, she should not really be given diplomatic immunity. She's the wife of a diplomat. Yeah, I think that we need to rethink the whole diplomatic immunity thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that we shouldn't be imprisoning anybody's diplomats over political issues. And that's really the, the basis for diplomatic immunity. But if, if a crime has occurred, even if it's just an accident, I think that you should have to face the music. I, I don't care who you are yeah. or where you are or what your job is.
Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think most right-thinking people would, would go along with that. LaDonna, thank you very much, as ever, uh, for talking to us. LaDonna Harvey from KOGO uh, in San Diego. There was a time when LaDonna and I uh, would have a conversation on her radio show when I would be attempting to explain Brexit. Uh, we've obviously all given up on that now because uh, there's no chance that I could explain it uh, in words of less than one syllable. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.